And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be back into our more series this morning where we've been looking to recalibrate our hearts to God's glory. Now, as you know, I've talked to you about the fact that we live in a culture that has been largely shaped by a couple of isms that if you're not careful and if you're not looking to God's word and immersing yourself in time with God's people, they will start shaping you. Uh, we've talked about materialism, the belief that all that matters is matter. Uh, that spiritual things are not real, and that all you need to be concerned with are the tangibles. Uh, the other one is, of course, uh, consumerism. Uh, this idea that not only is uh, matter the only thing that exists, but that really the point of life is just to get more stuff. And, and so those are two isms that are, are pretty significant in our culture that we're trying to press against. But there's a third ism that I want to talk about this morning that might be even more dangerous and detrimental to your calling as a disciple-making disciple than the other two, and that is individualism. Now, individualism is uh, a very strong uh, doctrine of uh, what it means to be an American, and it basically says that you prioritize the desire of the self above all else. In other words, your, your desires set the stage for your life and your life direction. And individualism is basically... Uh, an all-American trait. In fact, uh, that's why I wore my cowboy boots this morning. It's because cowboy boots really represent the cowboy way, the way of individualism, right? I mean, we all know John Wayne. Uh, John Wayne said, you know what? A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Now, what has he got to do that thing for? Well, he's got to do that thing for what he wants, right? And so he's got to make his own way, blaze his own trail. And the thing that has struck me since I've been in Phoenix is is that I believe that Phoenix is a great model, maybe um, almost an exaggerated model of what it looks like to be American. We are hyper-individualistic. I've told many people when I first came to Phoenix, I I thought that uh, this was going to be a lot like Mississippi uh, because we both voted Republican. Um, Let me just tell you, that is not true at all. Uh, Mississippians, uh, they, they consider themselves basically social conservatives. Uh, when you get here to Phoenix uh, in Arizona, uh, we are uh, basically Republicans because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody messing with our guns, which, by the way, we want to wear on our hips, right? I mean, we are gunslinging, gun-toting, individualist. That's who we are. And, and that is what it means, I think, to be an American. Americans are pretty famous for their staunch individualism. In fact, One newspaper writer, writing an opinion column, was reviewing a a book by Eric Liu, uh, A a Chinaman's Chance. And he observed in that, in that, uh, that piece, American culture now has an excess of individualism. That is, short-term thinking and prioritizing of rights over duties. You get that? It's more important what my rights are than what my duties are. And Liu calls for a corrective dose of Chinese values. Mutual responsibility, long-term thinking, humility, moral character, and contribution to society. Do you see it? I mean, basically, as they look at us, uh, he is saying we have a problem of being overly individualistic in the way that we view 
all of life. But catch this. This morning, Jesus is calling us again to join the greatest mission in human history. And it's a mission that's not your mission, it's God's mission that he's asking you to make your mission. And so to join him in building an eternal kingdom by going and making more disciples is God's call on our lives. So we're picking up this morning in Matthew's gospel in 28, 16 to 20, where we're going to see that we have been called to be part of calling others to follow Jesus. And there we're going to see this meeting between Jesus and his disciples. And it it could be, as far as we know, the 11th sighting of Jesus in that 40-day period that the resurrected Jesus showed up and made many appearances to many people. That's where the Lord spent time visiting the disciples on and off. We know by this time that Peter has already seen Jesus at least three times, and that Thomas has seen him once. And what we're going to find in this meeting that we have come to this morning is that with all authority, Jesus sends all disciples to make more disciples of all nations. I know that's wordy, so you might want to write that down. So we're going to be talking about this morning. I'll say it again. With all authority, Jesus sends all disciples to make more disciples of all nations. Now we're going to look at first the fact that Jesus calls all disciples. Jesus calls all disciples. And I actually want to jump back to a neglected part of the Great Commission. Uh, that's verses 16 to 17. So often we just jump over those. But I'd like to actually begin with that this morning because I believe that it is really important for you and me to be encouraged towards the Great Commission as we look at these verses. Notice what he says. Beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28. It says, Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary relayed Jesus' message and the angel's message to the disciples that they needed to go and meet Jesus in Galilee, that place where Jesus' ministry began. Now there's no explicit mention of Jesus giving the disciples the explicit GPS coordinates of the rendezvous of this mountain. We don't, we don't know how they knew about this specific mountain. But what we do know is, is this is the sixth, this is the sixth mountaintop experience that Jesus has had with others throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So you'll remember that he begins by meeting with Satan on a mountain in chapter 4. Uh, that he preached the Sermon on the Mount beginning in chapter 5. That he fed 5,000 on a mountain in chapter 15. That he was transfigured uh, in chapter 17. That he taught from the Mount of Olives in chapter 24. And here what we find is Matthew concluding his gospel with Jesus speaking with unprecedented authority from a mountain. Now we don't know which mountain this is. It could be the Mount of Beatitudes. That mountain where he began his ministry on. But hear this. I, I love what commentator Frederick Bruner says of these disciples here. I don't want any of us to miss this. I believe this is extremely important and something that we don't need to look over. He says this of these verses. The number 11 limps. It's not perfect like 12. And Matthew sees Jesus commanding a defective 11. Do you see it? Even saying the number 11 immediately reminds these disciples 
of what happened to number 12, right? He fled from Jesus, Judas. And he has, by this point, hung himself, committed suicide. And so you you would think if he's about to send them on the greatest mission that any human has ever been on, that the last thing you want to do is to trigger the signal of defeats of the past, right? I mean, you want to talk about like the victories and the winning. And yet here, he says there are 11. I mean, 11 doesn't quite set the mood for the moment of the greatest commissioning ever. And verse 17, notice that doesn't help much either. Matthew says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him as God. He should have just stopped right there, but he, he continued, and notice what he says, but some doubted. You might be thinking to yourself, why did you have to put that in? I mean, that's just confusing. Great scholars confused by this text, spend their lives studying this text. How could you doubt before the risen king? And what hope is there for us? You know, Don Carson and others uh, come here and they argue that some, the some that doubted uh, maybe speaks of another group who was present with the disciples. So the disciples worshiped because they viewed him as God. But that other group that wasn't mentioned coming with them, they doubted. Interesting way to get around this. In other words, the disciples, uh, you know, they are the worshipers. There were no disciples that did not worship Jesus. But hear me, I believe it seems much more likely in context that Matthew is highlighting an important reality about the nature of these disciples that many of us can relate to. And you may be thinking, why did Matthew have to put that in here? I believe, friends, hear me, come in close. I believe he put this in there for you and for me. I believe he put that some doubted in here to encourage you and me. Uh, Catch this. Jesus didn't just come to rescue sinners. He came to employ and deploy them on his search and rescue mission. You hear me? He didn't just come to save sinners. He came to send them out. And before we can talk about the what of discipleship, don't we just need to spend a moment and talk about the the who of discipleship? I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to relate for the Peter that preached at Pentecost. It's hard for me to imagine me relating to the John that had the revelation of heaven. It's hard. It's hard to relate to, to guys like that. But I can relate to disciples like Peter who's recovering from the shame of denying Jesus three times to a little girl as his Savior and friend went to the cross. I can relate to a a Thomas who needs to put his hands through the holes in the resurrected Jesus just to believe. See, some struggled with doubts even after seeing Jesus raised from the dead and catch this, raised multiple times. Praise God! That he calls 11-ish men and women like Peter and Thomas who come limping with doubts up the mountain to meet with their resurrected king, right? Praise God. Brothers and sisters, if you're not in an intentional discipleship relationship right now, as we read this text, you're going to have to ask yourself, why not? Why am I not intentionally meeting with others one-to-one? and in community groups. Why am I not taking discipleship seriously? We're getting there. But let me just ask you, if you're not in that relationship right now, why not? 
Now, maybe it's because you just didn't know. Could be that you just didn't know that God has called you to this or the kind of authority that God has called you to this with. I think we're dealing with that right now as we look at God's Word. But what other limps are triggering you or leaving you feeling unusable? Uh, Do you have past sins like Peter who denied Jesus? Or like Paul who killed Christians? And you cannot believe that a God could use you given your past. I mean, it was enough to save you. It's unbelievable to think that He could actually use you. Maybe that's you this morning. And friends, let me just tell you that God could even use our sinful past for His glory in discipleship. That's the kind of God that we serve. Even failures can be turned to benefits for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you feel this morning that you gimp because you don't know God's Word well enough to disciple someone else. If that's you, you should find someone to disciple you so that you can learn to disciple others. Or do you falter over the cost of time or money? Or or do you just want to be honest and say that I don't want to be bothered with it? Well, friend, we need to repent of those things. And and don't miss how Jesus responds. This is glorious. Don't miss how Jesus responds to these guys as they worship while some doubt. How do you expect Jesus to respond to this doubt? I don't expect Him to respond in the way that He does. See, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you need to fix yourself before you go out and and are used by me. You need to get it all straight if you're going to be used by the King of Kings. He doesn't tell them to get their stuff straight or to take an apologetics class so they can be certain about who He is before they can be used. He sends them. Now, this is so helpful. Don't get me wrong. They've received lots of teaching and training from Jesus Himself. But I believe that this is profound, that God would send those who are broken and sad and doubtful and struggling, and He would say, I am calling you to a great mission. You are part of my mission. Now, some people have a hard time with this text because they define a disciple as being really kind of like the black ops, special services kind of believer as opposed to every believer. But catch this, that's alien to the Bible. A Christian is a believer, is a disciple. All believers are disciples, are followers of Jesus. You can only follow one of two kings, either Jesus or the prince of this world. Disciples follow Jesus. And the goal of Christianity is to be a disciple-making disciple, making more worshipers for the glory of God. In other words, all disciples follow Jesus and teach others to follow all Jesus has taught in the Bible. But please hear me. Jesus sends imperfect disciples to do His perfect work. Do you hear that? I mean, we need to let that just minister to our souls. God sends imperfect disciples to do His perfect work. And that's the way that our God works. But there's a second thing we see here, and that's that Jesus speaks with all authority to all of these disciples in verse 18. Now just pay attention. Our efforts to disciple others says something about how, we'll, how well we've listened to who Jesus says Jesus is. Like the attention and the care and the seriousness that we take in pursuing to make disciples, it, it ultimately goes back to, have we heard Jesus right about who Jesus says Jesus is? And so as Jesus prepares for His exit in verse 18, He leads with, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we can't just skip through that verse unchanged. When somebody claims this kind of universal authority, I mean, if this is right, then then we need to come in close and hear what this authority has to say. And it means everything has to change. And so Jesus couples this image of a small group of beleaguered disciples with himself as the great king who has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you see it? I mean, it almost seems like a foil for one another. In the blink of an eye, Jesus, the dead and buried carpenter, became the resurrection life and the cosmic king over a kingdom without walls. I mean, what a change. He is king of kings and lord of lords. But friends, don't let the election discussions of CNN and Fox News fool you. You you might be watching right now, CNN News, you're watching Fox News, and as you're watching that, you're thinking to yourself, there is no way that this Jesus is King of Kings right now, right? You're thinking, this is just too much. Like, who's in charge here? But what we find here is that God's Word tells us something much different about the true, present state of affairs. Jesus is King right now. Now, Jesus not only reigns over the kings of this earth, but over the unseen rulers and principalities and heavenly places. He feeds scavenger birds and weed-like flowers, and no molecule is escaping his rule. Now, you might doubt this, like the disciples, when you look at the world around you, but don't mistake, friends, please hear me, don't mistake God's patience for absence. God is king now, And we will see that more fully and more fully until the day when He returns. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that true state of affairs. That Jesus Christ is King of kings. So who gave Jesus this authority? It says the authority was given to Him. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15.28, Paul tells us, the Father put all things in subjection under Jesus. He got it from the Father. And Jesus' kingdom, uh, we are told, has already won. His enemies just haven't yet realized it. So let's be clear. This isn't to say that the Son of God didn't have all authority before. That's not what this text is saying. Of Jesus, Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's in charge. So what's changed? Well, again, Don Carson helpfully clarifies, saying, it is not Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute. Rather, the sphere in which He now exercises absolute authority are now enlarged to include all heaven and earth, i.e. the universe. He is universally in authority over all things. Jesus is mediating all of the authority of the all-sovereign Father. Do you see that? I mean, there is no power or authority like Jesus. Now, don't miss this. It's with this all authority that Jesus sends all disciples to go to all nations to make more disciples. In other words, part of being a Christian is making disciples, and that comes from, catch this, the highest authority. That means that discipleship, catch me, it's a big deal to Jesus. And friends, brothers and sisters, if discipleship is a big deal to Jesus, that needs to be a big deal to us as His followers. So, 
It's not an optional amenity to Christianity to make disciples. It's central to it. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because of the therefore in verses 19 to 20. Check this out. In verses 19 to 20, we see that Jesus commands all disciples to go make disciples of all nations. Listen again to what he says. He he says in verse 19, look there with me. He tells them, right after all authority has been given to me, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice he says, go therefore. Now, if you've taken any Bible reading class, you know that people are constantly asking, you know, you need to always ask, what is that therefore, therefore? Well, here that therefore is there to point you back to that all authoritative king that has just spoken. And so some have said, as they've looked at this text, it's interesting the way this go is written in the original language. And so really what it says is something like, as you are going, make disciples. In other words, in whatever sphere you find yourself in, uh, you should be about the business of making disciples. Now, let, let me just say, uh, there is some truth to that. We need to be always aware of where God's put us. We need to be aware of the people that are in our uh, classes at school. We need to be aware of the folks that we work with. We need to trust that God has actually put us in those relationships for the glory of his name. It's not an accident. But it's, it's hard to go to a verse like this and say that it doesn't come with a kind of imperative to go and to actually displace yourself, to go somewhere you haven't been before to take the gospel out because realize he's just said, I'm speaking with all authority in heaven on earth. So if he's speaking with that kind of authority, I mean, there's a natural sense in which going comes with that kind of force. In other, words, you don't, in other words, you don't need to chart your path here to reach the nations. According to some, you just need to do it as opportunities arise. Jesus says, no, you need to make the mission of your life to take the gospel out further and further. And so here we find that these disciples who were beleaguered and discouraged, uh, they are called to take the gospel to all nations. Now just imagine how nuts that must have sounded to a number of disciples who probably never had traveled more than 100 miles from home. Have you thought about this? Like, I'm I'm saying this because I'm thinking some of you might hear this and think to yourself, that sounds incredibly inconvenient to go and make disciples of all nations. And so surely that was for those really psyched up disciple-type Christians, not a normal Christian like me. But just think about this. Uh, These Christians had never probably traveled much more than 100 miles from home. They did not have an iPhone to look up for ticket prices on Southwest. Right? I mean, we're talking about incredible sacrifice made to go and take the gospel to the nations. This would have sounded even crazier then than it does now. And don't miss me. The people that they were being called to go take the nations to, they were not people like them at all. They were the nations. They were the Gentile nations. The people that they hated. The people that had killed their kids. The people that had taxed them unfairly. The people that left them in fear for generations. This is generations of hatred. And they are called to now go and make disciples of them. Teach them to follow Jesus so that they become part of a new kingdom that Jesus was establishing. That was insanity. Friends, if that's insanity for them, you know that It's insanity 
for us, this thing that we are called to do, something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. It is something, friends, hear me, you cannot do on your own. That's why it sounds crazy. Without an all-authoritative God behind you, it's impossible. But here, what we find is, is that this mission, part of being a disciple is joining God's mission of reaching the lost. Now hear me, this is going to challenge the individualism of our age that recoils at thinking of others, especially those who are different than you. Especially when it's costly. And the call to make disciples will will cost us. It's going to cost us time and money and comfort and our self-esteem at times and individual pursuits. It's costly to make disciples. Discipleship is costly. And Jesus' command here means that Christ's authority not self-centered desire, propels our lives to look to love our neighbors, and the neighborhood just got a lot bigger, right? And Jesus commands this group of Jewish Christians uh, to do something that couldn't have been more uncomfortable. So here's what that means. We look as Christians to make disciples of our families, of our fellow church members, and of people that we don't know yet in places that we've never gone before. And Jesus says there are two priorities in making more disciples. In fact, there's really in this sentence only one main verb. That's making disciples. We're we're to go make disciples. That's the main verb. And really, if you you look at it, there there are two participles or words that kind of hang off of it in the original language that tell you how you make a disciple. One is baptize and the other is to teach. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, We need to be a people who are about baptism and teaching if we want to make disciples in the way that Jesus says. So first, notice that he calls them to baptize them in the name of the triune God. He says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this may blow some of your minds, but evangelism is actually part of discipleship according to Jesus. That's right. Discipleship includes leading a non-Christian to get baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we've talked about before, naming speaks to authority and ownership. When you name something, when somebody uh, creates a beautiful picture, uh, if they paint a beautiful picture, you'll notice that they put their name on it, claiming authority over it, and that they actually created this thing. That's what we do when we put our names on things. And here, what we find is, is that God is calling these disciples to put His name on new discipleships, new disciples that are made. As you know, we we practice uh, baptism uh, by immersion here, and we also practice credo-baptism. That means that we baptize folks who make a creed or a statement of faith that they have believed in the Jesus of the Bible, and they're committed to following Him. They say, whatever Jesus sends me, that is where I'm going to go. I'm I'm following Christ and I'm all in. That's what baptism means. Now, we don't baptize believers and their babies like paedo-baptists. And I know this is a sensitive issue. I know it personally because uh, I actually was sprinkled as a baby in a Lutheran church. Uh, My grandmother was Lutheran, is Lutheran. Uh, In fact, she told me that if I would become a Lutheran pastor, that she would pay for me to go to school in Germany. Now, for some of you, that might not sound like a big deal, but for a nerd, that's a huge deal. And so, uh, that was hard for me. Like, I thought about it. I prayed about that. Um, 
but at the end of the day, I told her, you know, I'm convicted. I can't, I can't do this. It's against my conscience. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And uh, what was fascinating was um, later we had our firstborn son, Benjamin. And when we took Benjamin to the house, she was like, well, could you at least sprinkle him in the Lutheran church? It would make me feel so much better. And I told her, no, we can't do that. And, uh, and so we had to keep a real close eye on her. When we took Benjamin to the house and the pastor was over, we were scared that she might slip into the bathroom and sprinkle him. So I'm not talking about like a difference of opinion that hasn't cost me and my family something, right? I mean, uh, but it seems very clear in the New Testament that, uh, that the way that we see baptism played out is that baptism is not like the, Old Te- the New Testament equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament. Now, I could go into deep theological reasons why not, but I can give you an easy one. It's because, uh, for one thing, um, we baptize girls. We know that's different, right? Than circumcise girls. Uh, so we know there's a difference between baptism in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But the other thing is, is, is really just that the equivalent in the New Testament to Old Testament circumcision is circumcision of the heart. That's the thing that was pointed to by Old Testament circumcision, a heart change. And in the New Testament, when the Bible speaks about a heart change, it speaks of circumcision of the heart and the presence of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, you're born again, you, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you confess that he is Lord. And so those are the folks that we baptize. We baptize those folks. So as we look at that, baptism uh, for us uh, is a public declaration and a a public declaration of something that has happened inside of you. We are saying that God has changed you on the inside and this is an outward drama or picture that God has given us to display the reality of that truth publicly. It means that people have been born again as a child of God the Father, that they have put their faith in Christ's work on the cross and resurrection for their sins, and that they have received the Holy Spirit which is sealed upon their hearts. So baptism says someone who is spiritually dead has been raised to eternal life. I mean, that's a a cool thing, right? Like, that's why we ought to clap when we see somebody get baptized. It's because we are celebrating the fact that new life has broken out. Eternal life. And so as far as I can tell, we can only trace baptism back to 200 years after Christ's death. And any argument for baptizing babies in the New Testament, I believe, is an argument from silence. See, biblical baptism, as we look at it in the history of the church, has always been including a confession of faith, repentance of sins, immersion in the name of the triune God, entrance into the church. And catch this, in church history, communion has always followed baptism. Always happened, historically. Um, And so that is the normal uh, progress of events. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be baptized as a believer. And now we learn a few things about baptism here. For one, baptized believers need to know about the triune God to be baptized, right? You have to have a certain knowledge, a certain education to be able to know who this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are that you're being baptized into. Don't need to know everything about Him, but you need to know some things. Second, what we need to know about baptism is that baptism is a big deal because you are putting the name of the triune God on someone. Do you see that? Like, can I get sort of a head nod? Like, yeah, that that makes sense that that's a big deal, right? God's name being put on me, claiming that I am a representative now of this God. Huge deal. And so we should take it seriously. Taking baptism lightly means that we are taking the name of the Lord God in vain. So we should take it very seriously. But third, baptism is about community. Baptism is about community. You're like, I don't see community here. 
Um, community's here. Uh, let, me, let me explain. Uh, one of the things that Everett Ferguson talks about in his monumental, like, 900-page book on baptism. Uh, you don't have to read it. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Um, what he says in this book that I find to be so helpful is that the thing that distinguishes Christian baptism from Jewish washings and other baptisms is that uh, the other washings, it was more of an individual that would do that. Even if somebody else was in the water with you, you would dunk yourself. Christian baptism, uh, it is a disciple that is literally dunking another disciple. So not only are you being united with God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son in baptism, that's a community, you're entering into the family of God, you're also being joined with God's people. Do you see that? of the community who you need to baptize you. And so if you're an individualist and saying like, I'm just going to go baptize myself in the river, that's not biblical baptism. You, you need another Christian. You need a local church that is going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the point here. But also we see forth that baptism isn't obedience. Baptism is obedience to Jesus. Baptism is obedience to Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus was baptized and we're told he did that so that he could fulfill our righteousness? It's kind of a weird, a weird thing to say about Jesus, right? I mean, are we saying that Jesus had to get baptized because he's been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life? Is that why he did that? No. Jesus did it because baptism is what obedience means in the new covenant. And so Jesus is leading the way, trailblazing the way, saying this is what it looks like to be faithful. It means that you are baptized. And so I'm doing it because I'm going to fulfill all of the law just like you're going to do it after me. So that we were baptized in the same way that Jesus was. And so if Jesus needed to be baptized, what does that mean about you and me and our need to be baptized? It's a big deal. Fifth, baptism is the starting line, not the finish line. You know, just so you know, like, uh, victory in this moment is not just getting decisions. Uh, Victory is a process, a slow, lifelong process of making disciples. And this is just the first step. Uh, Notice, that he says the second part of making a disciple is to teach disciples to live for Jesus in verse 20. Not only do you baptize them, but you also carry the process out in teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Jesus says the second part of disciple making is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. you. You might think that the mission of our cosmic king and what he sends us on sounds disappointingly normal. Right? He's sending us on this great mission. And he says... Okay, you ready? This is going to be exciting. It's the greatest mission that anybody's ever been sent on. I want you to teach. And you're like, I hate school. Like, I don't like to read. I don't like to think. And yet he says that part of discipleship is teaching them to observe or obey the words that I've commanded to you. That's the way that you're going to fulfill this great mission that I'm sending on. We are a people of the book. And if you think you can get to Jesus... Without your Bibles, that's crazy talk according to Jesus. See, all, our all-sufficient King gave us His all-sufficient Word to make disciples. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All Scripture, every word of your Bible, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and the training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what God's Word is for you and for me. Now, when He says that His Word is thoroughly sufficient for every good work, that includes everything from taking a non-believer to faith in Christ, seeing a new birth break out, to making a disciple who is more and more looking like Jesus who He serves. 
Both of those things. We need God's Word to make disciples. And we as a church, uh, as, along with the Orthodox Church of the Ages, have taken the 66 books of the Bible to represent the message of Christ to us. I love what um, I read just this past week. Um, I was meeting with Lee Granger for discipleship. Me and that brother who's going to be sharing in a moment. And we came across a verse that surprised me as much as him. I had never seen it in this way before. And, and it encouraged both of us. It was this, where 1 Peter 1.11 says, The Spirit of Christ, catch this, led prophets to say things angels in heaven long to behold. You're thinking, how can I use the Old Testament to help a non-Christian? Well, apparently it was good enough for Paul. And apparently it was good enough for Peter. Because both of them see the Spirit of Christ in the prophets of the Old Testament. Pointing towards Jesus and using them to make disciples. See, we're serious about discipleship because Jesus is, and that means that we need to be serious about God's Word. That's why we're created. That's why we created our equipping program to help train you to make disciples. Uh, we, we're serious about it and we're, we're doing our best to equip you. Uh, we, we would encourage you, please, we have uh, Sunday school classes which are E1 equipping classes every Sunday morning where we're taking you through things like church history and uh, how to read Ezekiel. Uh, all of these things for the purpose of helping you be a disciple. And not just a disciple so you can get fat on God's Word, but so that we can equip and prepare you to go out and make other disciples. You see it? Like that's all of the purpose of what it is that we're doing. See, Jesus says here, here's how you make a disciple. You as a Christian live and talk with people in such a way that you teach them all of Jesus' commands and how to live those out. You know, for me, I've told you before, when I was in college, it came with a physics professor who took me to have pizza at Mazio's every week and to sit down and talk about the Bible. And here's the funny thing. I didn't even know that he was discipling me. I just knew we were talking a lot about Jesus and that he loved me. And then I realized about a few years later when I was studying to be a pastor, I was being taught about what discipleship is. And I go, oh, that's been done to me before. Like, I didn't know that was what that was, but that's happened. And it made all the difference. Didn't have a name for it, but it happened. And it made all the difference for me in my life. You know, discipleship looks like uh, a young woman who goes and, and helps a, a mom uh, care for her children as they are s- discussing the Scriptures and their lives with one another. You know, uh, uh, discipleship happens as you're, you're having lunch with one another, going through a book of the Bible. Discipleship happens in all kinds of contexts, in all kinds of ways. It, it, it can happen in non-intentional ways, but it must, it needs to happen in intentional ways. We need to be intentional about discipleship if we want to have, have it with any kind of meaningful uh, meaning. Disciples need to be Uh, to see us be faithful in coming to church. Uh, Other disciples, they need to see us coming to church. They need to see us reading our Bibles, giving faithfully and generously, evangelizing, loving our husbands and wives, taking meals to the sick, being hospitable, and making more disciples. Disciples need to see these things being played out in real time, not just in a book, but actually in your lives. Now catch this. God uses our failures too. Discipleship isn't just about the hero Christian who is just extraordinarily gifted pouring into others. Let me tell you, disciples are going to learn from you when you show them your failures as well. 
You know, I told you the story before about the time that um, I was in the house and I was working and all of a sudden I heard a table break, glass broke, a very familiar sound in my house. Um, And so I have kind of PTSD with broken tables and stuff. I'm like, not again. Um, What's that going to cost? And so I run into the room and and there's Johnny and I, I yell at Johnny. I'm like, what are you doing? Not again. And go to your room. And, uh, and so then I, I talked to Carrie about it, and Carrie was like, Josh, um, you had asked him to help find a shoe. He didn't know the table was behind the couch. He was lifting the couch to see if the shoe was there, and that's how it broke, and it was a complete accident. It wasn't him being destructive, and all of a sudden, I felt like a horrible dad. Not just a horrible pastor, but a horrible dad. And so I walked into his room, and he's kind of, you know, crying a little bit, uh, because dad's a jerk. And so I go in and, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, John, you know, dad sinned against you. And I'm so sorry. Like you were helping. You did nothing wrong. Accidents happen. And, and I confess my sin. Now, I say that not because I'm the hero of that story, because I'm the guy who had to confess and I had to repent. And do you know that um, that is so important for us to do with our kids and also with the folks that we're discipling? We do not want to come off as... Hey, you know what discipleship means? Discipleship means you follow Josh. If we're not showing our faults, then it might come off that we're saying, you need to be more like Josh and God will be happy with you. Uh, If you're more like, you know, uh, Harry, God will be more happy with you. No, we want people to know, no, look, you need to be more like Jesus. And I need to be more like Jesus. And here's one example of how I need to look afresh to Jesus' grace to be different if I'm really going to be a good disciple who makes disciples. So friends, we need to be open and we need to be honest with our sin. We need to be about the business of making disciples, even if that means that people think less of us to the glory of God. And you might be surprised that people actually think a lot more of you about being transparent for your sin than trying to hide it. So maybe you feel even uh, more stressed right now to see disciple making as a command coming straight from the throne of God and maybe completely ill-equipped. But don't miss this amazing promise at the end. Verse 20b. Jesus promises His presence at all times. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We know from John 17 and from Acts 2 that that promised helper arrived in the person of the Holy Spirit who is given to every disciple for all times until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. So catch this. You're never alone in this incredible mission. That's what Jesus says. feels impossible. Well, catch this. That same all-authoritative Christ who sent you on mission goes everywhere with you on mission. So that it is Christ that goes before you as you go to share Christ and make disciples of others. It is Christ that is, has the Spirit dwelling within you to help you as you're in the, uh, the, the moment of making disciples. It's that same Spirit that works through you that is also working on others. And that same Spirit that works through you and in others loves the Word of God. You know that? You know the Holy Spirit loves the Word of God? He loves to use it to make disciples? You know how I know that? Because he inspired the thing. Right? We started that. All scripture is God breathed. It is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. Uh, The Holy Spirit carried men along to write words of God to us. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's words. And so we need to use the Spirit's tools, being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, to point people towards Jesus. I love what Frederick Bruner uh, closes his section. Uh, on this book with saying, Jesus' preceding 
all authority and succeeding all presence, support the Central All Nations Commission. Jesus' grace precedes, accompanies, and follows the disciples' obedience. The indicative of Christ's strength goes before, alongside, and after the imperative of disciples' responsibilities. We are covered, supported, surrounded. Mission with all these aids can be very exciting. Do you see it? If God is for us, great things can and will happen. We need to trust God when we can't trust our eyes. Now, let me just ask you, anybody here want to see more disciples made? Anybody am I alone here? Come on. 50% is not going to cut it for me this morning, guys. You just lie to the preacher this morning. Come on. All right. We want to see more disciples made, right? I want to see more disciples made. Well, here's what we want to do. Um, we are constantly trying to like, help you, help one another uh, with real practical ways that can get you on the track of making disciples. And so uh, we've come up with an exciting new initiative that we're launching uh, these coming weeks. And we want to tell you about it. And it's really something, uh, one application that we want to leave with from here that we hope will help you uh, learn how to better make disciples. We, we don't want it to seem complicated or something like you can't do. We want to give you some real practical training on this. So uh, here's what we've planned on doing. One, we bought 50 copies of one-to-one Bible reading by David Helm. It's a great book about how you can go through the Bible with either another Christian or even a non-Christian and discuss what the Word of God says and pray for someone. Uh, in fact, I was telling somebody about this initiative just last week, and uh, I think it was Bajan. I don't know if he's here, but he was telling me that he had actually started reading through the Gospel of Mark with another non-Christian. I said, that's awesome. Why did you do that? He said, because I love Jesus. I said, no, not, not that. Like, where did you learn to do that? And he said, well, I, I read that book, one-to-one Bible reading. And so I've been reading with a non-Christian friend of mine. It's been a great time. And so um, that's, that's a book that we have bought 50 copies of, and we're selling it at the ridiculously low price of $5. And if you can't afford the $5, talk to me. I'll slip you one in the back. But we're, we want you to get this book. It is a practical how-to guide of how you read the Bible with one another. And you might say, okay, um, that's good, but I'm not so good at reading books. I'm not sure I'll get it if I just have the book. Well, that's okay, because we have another part of this. We've actually got a Sunday school class, an equip class on Sunday morning that's going to go for two weeks, September 25th and October 2nd. And Dan Diffie's going to be teaching you the method of, of, of reading the Bible one-to-one with someone else on the first class. In the second class, he's actually going to give you opportunities during this joint class to, to do this with someone else and then give feedback as to how it went so that you can talk about, okay, how can I improve How do I need to look at this? How can I do better? Uh, That's the second thing. Uh, The third thing that we want to encourage you to do, if you decide to take Jesus' mission here, uh, is we want you to actually pray about, starting now, some person, one person that you would like to read the Bible with for eight weeks. Doesn't have to be in a row. But eight weeks this fall. Uh, And we want over... This is actually eight. Eight weeks this fall. And so we want you to read it for eight weeks with someone... Uh, just faithfully pray about who it could be. It could be a non-Christian or a Christian. Now, you might be thinking, this sounds very intimidating to me to think about reading the Bible with a non-Christian. Well, let me just encourage you, then read it with your husband or your wife or your friend. Uh, Read it with somebody in the class. Find somebody that will be in that class on Sunday and say, hey, would you just do this with me so that I can get in the practice of reading the Bible with uh, someone else in the disciple-making process. Pray for somebody to come along that you can do that with. 
And then also, if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's still, I could use some more help. Well, catch this. If you've got a non-Christian in mind and you're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark with them, then we're going to actually be going through the Gospel of Mark in our next series. And so let's say that you're wanting to go through the Gospel of Mark with a non-Christian friend and you're like, man, I need to get either one educated better than come to the series and get ready to go through Mark with someone. Or you might say, I'm going through the Gospel of Mark already with someone and I think it'd be a great opportunity to invite my non-Christian friend to come and hear a sermon on Matthew. Then you can invite him to that. And then finally... Uh, what we want to encourage you and ask you to do is to be part of letting us know how this goes. We'd like to hear what God has done. Uh, we're asking for more fruit. We want to get some tangibles. And so if you would write back to us, send us an email. We'll probably have something set up on the web where you can respond. Here are the discouragements or encouragements that came from me doing this from eight weeks. Uh, we'd love to hear about that so that we can give praise to God for what he does. So what you can do from here, um, uh, when we get through with the service, we will have a table set up in the back. We have a sign-up sheet where you can sign up for one of the copies of that book, One-to-One Bible Reading. We'll have it next week. You can pick one up and you can read it before the class that will be on the following week. Everybody, does that make sense? Everybody clear? We're good? Fantastic. All right. Isaac says we're good, so we're good. So here's what I want to do. I want to, at this point, you know that we've been ending this uh, series or the service each week with someone giving a testimony about how God has used them Uh, to make disciples or has been active in their life or the way they pursued making disciples or making more of whatever it is that we're talking about. And this morning I've asked Lee Granger to come forward and share with us uh, about how he has sought to make more disciples. So Lee, where are you at, brother? Will you come on down? Oh, there you are. Come on down, brother. Love this guy. Everybody give him a hand. This guy's going to be sharing with us. Thanks, man. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, Thank you, brother, for this opportunity to share. Um, There are probably more qualified people to share, um, but I appreciate this opportunity. Um, So I think the first place to start would be with how I myself became a disciple. Um, So I actually grew up in a Christian home, and for 20 years of my life, I I thought I was a Christian. I I went on the youth retreats, and and, you know, I I learned the language, so to speak, but I was self-deceived. But Christ being rich in, in mercy... Um, he convicted me of my sin, uh, his righteousness, a righteousness I did not have, and the judgment that was to come in which all of my hypocrisy and lawless deeds would be exposed and brought to light. <clears throat> so with this knowledge, um, I cried out to him who could save my soul from death. He alone can save, and, and he graciously pardoned me and, and gave me a passion and a zeal to, to share the word of God and to have others who were perhaps deceived uh, to, to know him in truth. <clears throat> um, so as a brand new believer, I have now a passion, a love for Christ, a love for the people of God, a love for the word of God. I wanted to go share that with people. And, and the Lord provided two, I would say, two main ways in which uh, I could go out and make disciples and be useful in that way. Uh, one was uh, he brought my brother and I downtown uh, to share the gospel outside the bars and the clubs. And uh, we saw some fruit from that. And my brother is, even to this day, still doing that, which is an encouragement to me. Um, The second way is God graciously provided a a teaching opportunity, uh, just a volunteer teaching opportunity at an Ethiopian church uh, in North Carolina. And uh, there I began to teach the fourth and fifth graders. And then from there, I I began to teach the the high schoolers in college age. Um, 
so I can still remember their faces. And I actually just want to share a story about one young guy by the name of Gurma. And, uh, you know, a very inquisitive young man, you know, he seemed intelligent, asking questions, and, and, and seemed, you know, he would, he would encourage other people to pray, and, and uh, you know, he, he seemed to, to be promising as far as bearing fruit, fruit goes. Uh, but <clears throat> the Lord called me to Phoenix um, back in October of 20, uh, 2012, and, you know, that was a hard thing because I had taught these high schoolers for, for a year now. And, uh, you know, that break was, was difficult, but I kind of, you know, he brought me out of the desert to, for my own, you know, time of trial and testing. Um, but, you know, I got to kind of see those kids from afar, kind of watch their lives on Facebook and, uh, you know, try and keep in contact with them. Uh, but, you know, Gurma just kind of went away, you know. You know, you, it's hard seeing someone who you've poured into and you've loved on and prayed for. Uh, to just go go astray, and he went off into drugs and immorality of various kinds. Um, <clears throat> but uh, God, being rich in mercy, again uh, graciously brought Gurma out. And it was about six months ago. Gurma called me out of the blue and was just like, "Hey, you know, I, I've come back to I've come back to Christ, and and I've been saved, and I want to be a youth pastor. I want to I want to share with other kids, and and so." I want that to be encouragement to some of you who have perhaps sons and daughters whom you've labored over in prayer and, and you try to encourage through the word of God and you're not seeing fruit and it seems like they're just rebellious. You know, let the Lord bring the, the increase and the growth and he alone can save. Uh, so that, don't let that be a burden for you, but trust in his mighty hand. <clears throat> um, so <clears throat> I also wanted to share... Um, how the Lord has been using me since I've been here. Um, so the Lord has opened up my home uh, to a number of different brothers. Uh, one was J- John Wilson, who is, uh, who is now baptized here, he, he and his wife. Um, and so it was, just, it was just a really good time to be able to, to see him fight sin and, and to grow in the knowledge of, of God. And um, I was just glad to be a part of that. And I would encourage you guys, too, to look for for either, you know, a young man or a young woman who you can disciple and encourage. Um, <clears throat> so I want to end with, I want to end with this. Um, as far as our discipleship making goes, Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy uh, of our, the difficulty that may come with discipleship. Uh, he's worthy of that rich inheritance that he has in the saints. And it is an honor to, uh, to be a part of that, and we should rejoice in that. Um, my current roommate was actually, he, he, I love him, he just, he, he gets this, he has passion about, let's go share the gospel. I was like, okay, let's do it. And so we go to, to go to Walmart, which is our kind of go-to uh, now. Um, yeah, that's where we go. Uh, so uh, he was sharing a go- he was sharing the gospel with, with a man outside after we were leaving, and I just kind of brought the car around. I was just letting him do that. I was just praying for them. And just afterwards, when I got home, I just remember feeling thankful. Uh, the reason being, that could be me. That could be, uh, you know, that could have been you, right? We were all once, you know, rebellious, lost, without God, and without hope in the world. And I just want to encourage you, you know, think about your family members and your friends. That's, you know, that's someone, that was someone's brother. That was someone's son. And uh, so... Uh, I will leave with this, and this is Romans 10, 14, and 15. 
How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Amen.